At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. Well, good morning to everybody. It is great to be here with you. Uh, as Rick said, uh, Judy and I, we'd heard a lot about, about this church and especially about Rick. And uh, there's a neighbor of uh, Rick's named Phil Beavers who lives like two doors down from you. And he said that Rick is a great neighbor and uh, really became friends and uh, love each other. And I said, I told Judy, I said, we need to visit the church sometime. I want to hear Rick preach, just like he said. I still haven't heard Rick preach at all. Uh, but one thing I just really noticed uh, was the, the feeling of being home. It was kind of a crazy deal. Uh, there's a lot of churches that do church well. There's not many churches that do church home well. I was talking to John Rademacher after the service, first service, and he's been here about five years or so, and uh, he said the same thing, that when he came here, he just felt he was home. Uh, that was kind of the sense. Now, a lot of it had to do with when Rick and I started talking. It was amazing uh, how much similarities we have. My uncle, Gene Carter, an ordained minister, was uh, his parents' minister. <laughs> Just like, what a small world type of thing. And uh, so it was really cool, cool to, to talk to him and, and share with him. And I'm from Ohio, too. And so we both share that kind of thing. So, oh, gee whiz, I can't believe it. Anyway, uh, so it, it just was really great to be able to worship with you and to experience uh, this congregation. Uh, prayer is a crazy thing. When you think about it, it's trying to connect with an invisible being who is far beyond our comprehension. This being we know as God, we're told, spoke all things into creation. And when you consider the size and scope of the universe, it is unimaginable to conjure up what kind of being this God is. For example, our solar system uh, is uh, part of the Milky Way galaxy, just a, a small part. Uh, and scientists estimate that there are over 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone, 200 billion stars. And that our galaxy is just one of over two trillion galaxies in the universe. That, that doesn't blow your circus. I don't know what will. We just don't have the mind to comprehend that, those kind of numbers. And God, this God that we're trying to talk with, to communicate with, spoke all of this into creation. As children, we are taught to poetically pray to this God. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And yet we're told that even that simple prayer from the lips of a child prayed in faith, this God hears and honors. That's, that's amazing. That's crazy. I grew up in a devout Christian family and prayer was very much a part of our lives even so, growing up, it was a mysterious thing to me, and it still is, to be honest. Life as a kid and as a teenager was a very busy time for me, and I didn't think very deeply about my faith or about prayer. I just kind of believed what my parents believed and got on with having fun. But I remember as a teenager coming home from a date one night around 1130, 
And as I crept up the stairs, I noticed that mom and dad's bedroom door was open a crack, and I just happened to glance that way for a second. And, and I saw my dad beside the bed, kneeling beside the bed in prayer. Now, dad always told us five boys, there's five boys in my family, but he told us that he prayed for us by name every night. So I knew that for a fact. But that night, when I saw that and I moved on into my own bedroom, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks. It was honestly like a revelation from God. And this was it. My dad really believed, I mean, he really believed all this stuff about God, about the church, and about prayer. He really believed. It was hard for me to go to sleep. And he truly believed that his prayers were going to make a difference in his son's lives. That was a seminal moment for me. Isn't that amazing how so many things can happen in life, but that one little glimpse God used to help change me. It was the beginning of my own faith journey. Now, prayer is still a mysterious thing to me. I still have a lot of questions about it. And on your own faith journey, perhaps you have questions about prayer as well. I think much of our problem with prayer outside of a child's simple understanding is that it's something so large that we can't quite get a handle on it. I mean, how do we speak to this kind of God? What is the proper protocol? What should we talk about? What is our focus? I have a granddaughter named Avery who has become quite a prayer warrior. And one night, my daughter Jill called me and said, hey, I gotta tell you about what Avery's prayer was tonight before she went to bed. I said, okay. Uh, well, Avery prayed, oh Lord, thank you for your presence. And then she paused and said, and may I get every one of them. <laughs> now we, we might laugh at that, but how many people would prefer God's presence, T-E-T-S, than to God's presence, C-E? You see, when it comes to prayer, we're not sure exactly how we are to pray and what we should pray about. Do we really understand this prayer thing from God's point of view? Well, Jesus understood the importance of prayer. Even with three short years to establish his ministry and to accomplish what he came to do, he took the time to pray often. It didn't matter if he was in the middle of a healing crusade or an intense time of discipleship training. Jesus would go off by himself to pray. It is said that throughout the Bible, there are more promises attached to prayer than anything else. And Jesus knew that. But the rest of us, even the best of us, are still somewhat in the dark about prayer. We're told it's powerful. We're told it changes things. We're told that good Christians do it regularly. Yet for many of us, prayer is still a difficult thing to do. Well, to help people like ourselves, Jesus tries to help us gain a proper perspective on this thing called prayer. In the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, he begins to list the things and behaviors of those who are Christ followers. And in the book of Matthew chapter six, then Jesus now zeroes in on prayer. And he first tells us how not to do it and then takes the time to share how we are to do it. Chapter six in the book of Matthew, verses five through eight. 
tells us not to pray for the eyes and ears of others. Jesus says this, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, years ago, I had a friend of mine tell me about an embarrassing incident he had when he first began in youth ministry. He had just started work there and was attending his first church potluck when the senior pastor asked him to pray for the food. Well, he prayed tentatively, but sincerely, a short prayer for God's blessing on the food. When he was done, the senior pastor, getting everyone's attention, said, uh, now we pause for a real prayer. Yes, I hear something in the background here. Not sure what that is. Uh, anyway, now, now we pause for a real prayer. All right, for a commercial, I'm not sure. But now, now we pause for a real prayer. But, and so the minister, the senior pastor, intoned an oratorical theologically sound three-point prayer in a James Earl Jones voice. You know what I'm talking about. When he was finished, the tried and true were truly impressed, and my friend was properly humiliated. That was what the preacher wanted and what he got. I don't think God was impressed, though. How about you? In fact, I know he wasn't. I think the food was more blessed by the first prayer than the second. Jesus in these verses points to the religious elite of his day like that senior pastor to show how not to pray. Even though he doesn't mention the Pharisees in this passage, everyone in the audience that day knew who he's talking about. They were shaking their heads, poking elbows into ribs. These guys, the Pharisees, took every opportunity to show how spiritual they were. It is said that a pious Jew prayed standing with hands stretched out, palms upward, and with head bowed. Prayer was said three times a day at nine, then 12, and three. So it would be easy to make sure that you were on the steps of the temple or the synagogue, maybe at a busy street corner, maybe in the middle of the town square at just the right time. Then you would dramatically and at great length utter a majestic prayer for all to hear. Well, that's what these people were doing. And it worked with most. They were impressed. But Jesus wasn't. In fact, he says in effect that while other people heard the prayer, God didn't. Any reward or result from that kind of prayer is limited to the oohs and ahs of those who heard it. You see, the ultimate object of the Pharisees was to concentrate attention on the one who was praying rather than on the one to whom the prayer was offered. The purpose of the Pharisees was not to glorify God, it was to glorify themselves. So Jesus was saying, people, people, listen, understand who you're talking to. 
This God of the universe is permitting you to come into his presence. He is granting you the privilege of addressing him by name. He is allowing you to acknowledge your blessings, to share your concerns, and to participate with all others in changing the world. Never take that for granted. In the middle of a busy week, I had a student come to my office to talk about a personal problem. I always tell the students, my door is open. You can come in to talk anytime. You don't need an appointment. Now my door's shut. I'm in with somebody else, but if my door's open, you can walk right by the secretary and into my office, and we can talk about anything that you want to talk about. And he wanted to talk about a personal problem he had. And for about an hour, he shared his story in tears, and it was very moving and dramatic. And then he asked me for my advice. I had just started to talk when his phone beeped, and he immediately reached for it and proceeded to respond to a text, then a second text, and a third text in summation. When he finally looked up from his phone, I asked if there was an emergency that he needed to deal with or something really important. And he said, oh no, my friend just wanted to know where I was and what I was doing for lunch. I asked him why he felt the need to be rude. He didn't understand my question. To help him, I said, unless you're waiting for an emergency phone call, turn your phone off. If you can't do that, then come back when you can. He left my office shaking his head, wondering what my problem was. You understand what I'm talking about? <laughs> now, I'm not equating my presidency with being God, obviously not. But imagine the affront and the insult when we take God for granted. These Pharisees changed their focus from speaking to God to just speaking to people. They weren't interested in hearing from God. They just wanted the people to hear them. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Well, it's then that Jesus makes an interesting statement that has led to countless discussions and debates. Uh, being at a, a Bible college, uh, this is the kind of question we'd be up till three in the morning debating and never coming to a resolution at all. Maybe a fistfight or two, but never a resolution. Verse eight has Jesus saying this, do not, be, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now I get the first part of the verse, don't pray just because you want to be known as a spiritual person, focus on God, not yourself. But it's the next part that's been confusing to me for most of my adult life. If God knows what I need, before I ask him, why should I have to pray? If I believe God is sovereign, and I do, he's sovereign throughout his creation, if he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, then why should I pray? Now, whether you believe in predestination or free will or both, this could be a problem. I like what John MacArthur, a known Calvinist, has written about this verse. He writes this, it is absolutely clear from scripture that God is sovereign and yet not only allows, but commands that man exercise his own volition in certain areas. If man were not able to make his own choices, God's commands would be futile and meaningless. If God did not act in response to prayer, Jesus' teaching about prayer would also be futile and meaningless. Our responsibility, he writes, is not to solve the dilemma, but to believe and act on God's truth. 
whether some of them seem in conflict or not. I think that's sage advice. See, no matter our stance on predestination or free will, we are to pray. And someone has put it this way. He said that prayer is like endorsing a check. God has already written out the check for a specified amount, but to cash it, we need to endorse it. So praying in faith endorses God's blessings. Now that doesn't answer all the questions that Jesus' statement raises in my mind, but I think it can help us move on to the part of the passage where now Jesus tells us how to pray. In chapter six, verses nine through 13, Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I find it interesting that when I pray this prayer, I don't focus as much as I should on the two pronouns, our and us. How about you? Now, when I pray, I do have a sense that the world doesn't revolve around my needs at once, at least for a little bit. But that sense is fleeting. If I'm honest, my prayers, while they do include others, too many times are in the context of how it impacts me. But the words our and us are there for a reason. We are praying for others as much as we are praying for ourselves. We are praying as a part of a community of faith that seeks God's blessings for everyone. And notice how God wants to be addressed. He doesn't want to be known as supreme ruler or cosmic potentate. He wants us to call him Father. This God whose majesty and glory is so far beyond our imagining wants us to call him Father. He wants a relationship with us as with a son or a daughter. And that's just crazy to me. One of my favorite authors is a man named Thomas Merton. Uh, he passed away many, many, many years ago. Uh, but boy, the things that he writes and says just really hit me where I need to be hit. But he wrote this one sentence, and it's very provocative for me. The man whose prayer is so pure that he never asks God for anything does not know who God is. I love that statement. He's saying God is our father. And as a father, he loves to give to his children. He wants to provide. He wants nothing better than to bless us. Uh, the apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church wrote this. I keep asking, I mean, he's praying. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And here's what this phrase is so that you may know him better. That's the key. So that you may know him better. He, he goes on to say in effect that when you know him better, you then understand how blessed you are to be his children. You understand the hope you have. You understand the riches you have. You understand the power you have all because he is your father. But before we get to thinking he is our heavenly ATM machine, before we behave like 20-somethings who have delayed adulthood, 
before thinking we deserve or entitled to have God be at our beck and call, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Yes, he is our father, but he deserves to be respected, even worshiped. To be hallowed means to be set apart, to be unique, to have no equal. When we come to him, we need to bow our hearts and minds. So I want you to hear this. When Jesus prays, our father in heaven, he is speaking of God's attitude toward us. When we pray, hallowed be your name, he is speaking of our attitude toward God. Now with that settled, Jesus prays this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, God wants us to pray that his will is done. And, and that's, that's a powerful statement. We are to pray that his will is done in our lives and in the world. Now we talked about this uh, earlier. We know God is sovereign, yet in his sovereignty, and this is the confusing part, <laughs> in his sovereignty, he allows us to be involved in carrying out his will on earth. Our prayers somehow play a part in accomplishing his will. Just like we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that is, to be involved on a physical level, he wants us to be involved on a spiritual level, and that is to pray. James 5.16 tells us, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, since all of us in Jesus are now, are now made righteous, that means our prayers really change things. They are powerful and effective in making God's will a reality. So think about it. God could have created a world where prayer wasn't needed. He could have eliminated free will. But in his wisdom and love, he allows us to participate in bringing his kingdom and his will to completion. Now, if that's not crazy, I don't know what is. He is entrusting to us this opportunity to share in his work. So with Jesus establishing who we are praying to and focusing our prayer on the accomplishment of God's will, he now moves on to petitionary prayer in verses 11 through 13. And he uses the word us to let us know that the matter of food and forgiveness and deliverance are universal needs and that we are dependent on God for them. It is through prayer that we have access to God's provision and his grace and his power. I read somewhere that prayer is like uh, a, wartime, a soldier in wartime who has a, a walkie-talkie that uh, connects back to headquarters. Uh, imagine being posted as a lookout given the responsibility of making sure that a patrol is kept supplied and informed about enemy positions. So picture yourself on a hilltop in Afghanistan and your job is to, to, to watch to make sure that the patrol that is out coming down a valley is kept safe and, and given provisions. And then when you're up there and you're looking through binoculars, you see some enemy troops just ahead and they're waiting to ambush this patrol. So imagine you have a walkie-talkie to call back to headquarters and you say, Hey, excuse me, anybody back there? Yeah, by the way, you know, it's really hot out here, all right? Uh, it'd be nice if I had like one of those little battery-operated fans. How about some water? You know, how about a little pad or some kind of a cushion because it's really rocky out here? Instead of calling attention to headquarters, 
that this patrol is on duty, and yet how many times do our prayer reflect that? You know what that would be called in wartime? That would be called dereliction of duty. We need to be saying back to headquarters, our guys are in danger of being ambushed. I'm calling in an airstrike from headquarters to destroy that enemy position so that our people are kept safe. I want you to imagine this worship service right here being a similar thing. Many times we come to worship service expecting to be blessed, and, and great, we need to do that. But how about we come expecting to be a blessing to others? I mean it this way. We're, we're sitting there waiting for the service to open, and we look over across the sanctuary, and there's an older couple sitting there. How about we pray for that older couple, saying, Lord, I don't know their situation, but, but they're ending their years, and I don't know if they have health issues or any kind of financial issues or maybe their children, but Lord, I, I pray for them. I'm calling in, in effect, an airstrike from heaven to help these people. Or you look across the room and you see a young couple just starting out in married life and say, Lord, there's all kinds of pressures in our world that are gonna to try to tear this, these two apart and then start praying for them specifically. Or you see a teenager in, in the audience and you say, Lord, I'm sure glad I'm not big, growing up in an era like today because man, the temptations and the pressures that are on our young people are just incredible. There's all kinds of things that are going on. And Lord, I'm glad that my days are ending, but man, my, my son or my grandson uh, or, or that young person is gonna be faced with all kinds of issues. Imagine a church service where everybody in here is calling in airstrikes from heaven to help each other in this worship service. What kind of dynamism would we have here? What kind of power would be unleashed? I have a friend of mine named Dean Troon and he wanted to visit over in Korea because he wanted to go to Pastor Cho's church that runs 300, 400, 500,000 people. He said he walked in the door. I said, how was it? He goes, well, I couldn't hardly get in the door. I said, why? He said, because the whole foyer, which this whole building could be put inside in that building. The whole foyer was filled with people laying prostrate on their faces, praying to God that someone would come to know Jesus today in that worship service. What kind of congregation would we have with that emphasis on praying for one another? Jesus concludes his instruction on prayer by adding a postscript in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now on the surface, it seems that Jesus is saying that forgiveness is something we earn by forgiving others. But we know as Christians that our forgiveness was bought by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't talking about that. What he is saying is that by forgiving others, we show we understand the forgiveness that we receive from God. You see, if we don't forgive others, then we miss the mercy and grace that was given to us. As Jesus tells the story in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant, that man didn't connect his master's debt forgiveness for him with showing mercy to another. And as a result, the offered payment of debt was taken away from him. As James says in his letter, faith without works is dead. So putting it a different way, a person who knows he is truly forgiven by a merciful God would show his awareness and his thankfulness by forgiving others. That's what he's trying to say. So prayer, 
We talked about it this morning. It is an amazing thing. It's a crazy thing. Yes, it's a key to self-discovery. It gives direction to life. It's a way to connect with God. Yes, it's all these things. But prayer primarily is the means by which we participate in the carrying out of God's will on earth. It's also the way we seek God's blessing for us and others. As crazy as it seems, this simple act of communicating with God has the power to change lives and change the world. Now, don't get hung up by the structure of Jesus' prayer. Instead, focus on the content. It's not supposed to be an incantation. We don't have to repeat word for word the Lord's Prayer before we can expect an answer. What Jesus is doing is giving us an example of how we should pray. In prayer, we need to acknowledge who God is, then pray to a Father who loves us and loves to give to us. Now, the mystery of how prayer works may still leave us with questions, but know this, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation extols the value and importance of prayer. Jesus believed in the power of prayer. His teaching on the who and the how and why and what of prayer answers a lot of questions. Not all of our questions, but enough to know that when we pray, God listens, God responds, God answers. So when you think about it, It's crazy not to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is such a guide to us and helps to explain so many things that are mysterious. And Father, maybe me personally and maybe others are taking this in just the wrong way. We're into having all of our questions answered, but the main question is this. God, are you a good God? And God, do you love us? And the answer is resoundingly yes. So when we pray, we are addressing a being who wants to give, who loves to give, who looks at me and others as sons and daughters. Father, I thank you for that truth. It's a powerful truth. Lord, help me to pray more. Help me to understand the power that's unleashed when I do pray. Father, you know my heart and you know that I still have questions about prayer and there's probably some here in this this audience today that feel the same way. But Lord, we know this, that when we pray, you listen and you act. We're so grateful for that, Father. As I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.